our scripture this morning is, again, continuing the book of Obadiah. And we'll start in verse 15 to the end of the book. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. And they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion and rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. Let's pray, and we'll get right down to work together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We want to take a moment to uh, posture ourselves um, in a way that truly reflects who we are, and that is we are your kids. We are created by you and for you, and we exist through you, Uh, but our souls very often come to this place um, really out of alignment because though we are created by you and for you and um, exist um, because of you, we spend our days, our hours, our weeks oftentimes away from you, um, practicing autonomy or independence, running after other identities or purposes in life, and uh, so perhaps we're coming in here this morning, Father, as your kids, just weary from time spent apart from you. Maybe, maybe for some of us there's a weariness, but we don't even realize it's because we're not, we're not relationally connected with you. Whatever the case may be, we want to collectively um, posture ourselves before you as your needy kids, thanking you for your grace towards us and asking again that you would give our souls the daily bread that they need so that we'd find our satisfaction in you. Father, you're good to us. I pray that you would remind us of your goodness this morning. And Father, we're not the only expression of your family gathered. Uh, We think so many churches, good churches around the island, and we think of our friends at Coza and Calvary, at Neighborhood, um, at Keystone, at Zion, at Yomiton International, and uh, the, the several Calvary churches around, just so many, uh, Church of God in Christ, 
greater friendly, and on and on and on. And Father, we pray in each of these gatherings that your kids would be refreshed and renewed and restored. And wherever there may be people gathered with us who are not yet adopted into your family, Father, I pray today that you would, in your kindness, show them uh, how good you are as a father and that your kindness would um, draw them into your family today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're part two of two for Obadiah this morning. Remember Obadiah, the little known, little known man with a little known message. He's really so disrespected. He's really, I think I mentioned this last week, you know, he's like the only Old Testament author or prophet who's not quoted in the New Testament. It's bad. In fact, if you were to ask Obadiah how bad it is, he'd say, oh, bad, I, uh, right? It's right in his name. It's bad. I worked on that all. That's it. Let's pray. Thanks for coming. Uh, so Obadiah introduces us to a little known but very important day. And we learned last week that the, this day has a name. It's called the Day of the Lord. Sometimes in Bible, the word day is used literally to describe a 24-hour period, right? We have seven hours in a week. Sometimes it's used to, de- to describe a season, a series of days strung together, if you will, even years. Uh, God does not reckon time like we do. And so I think it's most likely that the day of the Lord represents not a 24-hour day, but a a long season, a season in which God accomplishes some very important realities. Do you remember the big idea from last week? It was a really long sentence. There it is. The day of the Lord is. And we, we kept it simple like that because, honestly, we wanted it to be an because the reality is, most of us, we kind of informally polled it, most of us may be largely unaware that there's even a book in the Old Testament by the name of Obadiah. Many of us have, most of us have never heard a sermon from Obadiah. And when it comes to the day of the Lord, like, is that Sunday? Is that what we're talking about? The Lord's day? Maybe you've heard that. What's the day of the Lord? And so we just need to understand The day of the Lord is. There is a day by the name of the day of the Lord, and it is the most important day to you. Right? Next Sunday is what? Mother's Day. So that's fairly important, right? You, it's important enough that some of you already have plans, yeah? At least publicly you're saying, yeah, yeah, we have plans. (laughs) We do. We're working on them, right? It matters. So you're going to invest you're going to live a life shaped by the reality that Mother's Day is only a week away, right? At least you should. The intent of Obadiah is that we would see the day of the Lord as the most important day in our future and that we would learn to live lives every day, Monday through Friday, moment by moment, that are shaped by the reality that the day of the Lord is coming. So the day of the Lord is. There is a day. You, maybe you didn't, you've never heard of the day, but the day of the Lord is. Maybe you don't believe in the day. It doesn't matter. 
the day of the Lord is. You may be here and not quite believing in God. Okay. It doesn't change the reality that the day of the Lord is. It is. And it's coming. It's future. Okay. So the day of the Lord is. We learned last week. So for those of us who are new to the idea of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is when King Jesus returns, right? Because we know Jesus died, he was buried, he was resurrected, and then he ascended to God the Father, and he's coming again. That's his promise to us. So the day of the Lord is when King Jesus returns, executing final justice and establishing his forever kingdom. These are the two realities of the day of the Lord. Justice will be executed, and his forever kingdom will be established. I like to think of it this way, injustice confronted finally, or maybe we could use the word fully. Like finally, all injustice will be confronted, and it'll be confronted fully, right? So injustice confronted fully, and injustice crowned forever. The day of the Lord is this turning point in history where all injustice, not only will it cease to exist, it'll be eradicated, but it'll also be dealt with to the full extent. Everybody who has ever committed any injustice will face justice. But as that page turns into Jesus' good forever kingdom, when he's crowned injustice forever, injustice will be a thing of the past, and it will be absolutely beautiful. So the day of the Lord is. Uh, Just by way of recap, here's what we learned last week. The day of the Lord is necessary. It's near. It's for the nations. And it's nearly inescapable, right? So we learned it was necessary because of violence done. But we learned that the uh, bad guys, if you will, the antagonists in Obadiah's storyline, Edom, uh, really, Edom is, or Obadiah is using Edom, he's writing about actual historical people and historical events, but then he kind of brings it around and he says, we are Edom. Like, Edom represents every one of us. They've committed violence, we commit violence. They've sinned against God, and in sinning against God, have exercised injustice against people, and that's the storyline of our lives. We sin against God, we sin against other people, and the Bible would call all of that violence. So the day of the Lord is necessary because of violence done. It's near. That's the word that Obadiah uses, meaning it's imminent or certain. So let me fix something for you. You kind of grew up hearing, what what are the two certainties of life? Death and taxes. Let's fix that. Death, taxes, and the day of the Lord, okay? So that's, in fact, the day of the Lord is more certain than taxes, and it's more certain than death. Like, just let that sink in a little bit. Everybody's going to face the day of the Lord. It's certain. It's near. It's God's plan A, and there's not a plan B. It's for the nations. And what we learned last week is when that word is used throughout Scripture, nations, most often it's used to describe anybody and everybody who's not a part of God's family. Um, So the judgment piece of the day of the Lord is for all of those who have never repented of their rebellion and turned to Jesus as their rescuing king and found their place in God's family. All people will face that judgment. It's for the nations. So it's all of us. And it's nearly inescapable. It is, it is a thorough, heavy, 
nearly inescapable judgment, but God in his kindness provides a way of escape. Remember we saw that? That way of escape was made in Jerusalem, the very place that was a scene of all of the destruction and injustice becomes, the, becomes a scene of deliverance, of rescue. Learned that Jesus is our way of escape. So if you hope to expect the or escape the thorough expression of God's justice, Jesus is your only way of escape. Meaning, your good works are not a way of escape. Your Christian identity, having grown up in the South, is not a way of escape. Your Catholic inheritance, growing up in a good Catholic family, is not a way of escape. Your good motives are not a way of escape. Jesus is the only way of escape. But he's offered to you. He is offered to everyone who will repent and believe of the violence they have done against God and the image bearers that God created. Okay, so that's Obadiah part one. Obadiah part two, gonna make that long, big idea sentence even longer today. Here it is. The day of the Lord is good. It's really good. I think there's a lot of misnomer, there's a lot of uh, uh, misunderstanding about, out there about the day of the Lord. <clears throat> because it's so closely associated with judgment, we're like, the day of the Lord is only bad. But that's not true. The day of the Lord actually, in every possible way, is really, really, really good. And I want to show you from the text, from Obadiah's uh, writing, why that is so. The day of the Lord is good. And if you're looking for very specific reasons as to why the day of the Lord is good, you like to take notes, here you are. Here's just kind of two thoughts you can hang everything on this morning. Um, I like to use the two words restoring and reimagining. So the day of the Lord is good because it restores what was, or we should say it this way, it restores what should have been. Because isn't that the reality? And you're like, like deep down, you know that there are certain beautiful realities that should have been true about your childhood, but they weren't. Broken family, right? They should have been true about the life, but they weren't because we live in a broken world. You know if you're single, there should be beautiful realities about your singleness right now. It's not less than marriage, but because of our broken world, there, we, we attach stigma and discontent and all of these things, and all of sudden singleness is bad, or marriage. We know there should be something true and beautiful about the marriages that we're in, but for every one of us, there's this systemic undercurrent of, ah, it's not everything that it should be, right? So the day of the Lord is a restoring, not necessarily of what was, but what should have been. So restored past. The day of the Lord is also about a reimagined future. It's reimagining what will be. And that is, a, I, I want to show it to you. It's absolutely beautiful. All right, next slide. Let's start with restoring what was or should have been. That res restoration of the past is really a, oh boy, I took my little, everybody has one of these, right? Oh. He was in Obadiah. Remember how I told you last week you have to find Obadiah? This is how bad it is for Obadiah. It's a single page. So, yes, your pastor uses the index. It's okay for you to use the index too. Obadiah 772. See, that would have taken a couple minutes if I didn't do that. There we go. Obadiah. 
The reason the day of the Lord is good is because it's a complete reversal. Let me, let me show you just three reversals. Um, I guess it's kind of cheating. The first one, I'm just going to use the word reversal. Uh, the second reversal, that, well, it's a reversal of injustice. Okay, let me show you that. Reversal of injustice. Uh, the second reversal, if you will, is uh, reconciled, restored relationships. I want to show you where some relationships are restored. And then the third reversal is a rescue. Okay, so if you need three, they're all, I'm so bad. I'm sorry, guys. Three R's for our reversals, okay? Uh, justice to injustice, how about that? Or injustice to justice, then reconciliation, and then, and then rescue. Let me, let me show you the injustice to justice, and that is in verse 18, where it says, the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, so by way of explanation, Jacob and Joseph, those would be the, the names of forefathers from whom God's people descended, right? Um, so he's talking about his family here. So this is family talk. My family's going to be like a fire. My family's going to be like a flame. And the house of Esau, stubble. Now Esau is the uh, patriarchal name, if you will, for Edom. Edom descended from Esau. So he's talking about Edom. And Edom will be stubble. They will burn them and consume them. So this is poetry, okay? God's people aren't literally a fire. They're not literally going to set the people of Edom on fire. He's using poetry to describe a great reversal. And consume them, and there will be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the people of Edom, for the Lord has spoken. Now, when Obadiah is saying this, though, this message isn't for the people of Edom. This message is aimed to encourage God's people. So he's saying to people, he's reversing it, because as he's saying this, actually, the opposite is true. The house of Jacob is stubble, and the house of Joseph is stubble, and Esau is the flame and the fire that is rolling through their land, destroying Everything, right? So when Obadiah speaks this out loud, the people who are receiving the message have been destroyed. Their lives are experiencing incredible injustice. In fact, I think this is compelling. When he's talking about stubble and fire, it's entirely likely that Obadiah gave this message or this talk on the heels of destruction. In other words, like Mariupol right now, the city that's still being evacuated. And the oppressor is still coming into the city. So people are literally sitting in ruins. Imagine an Obadiah in that setting, speaking an encouraging word, even while the people who are about to be refugees are sitting in the burning, actively burning, smoldering rubble of their homes, feeling the sting of injustice. That's where Obadiah is giving his encouragement. And he's talking about a complete reversal. In other words, all injustice will be eradicated and justice will be fully given. And the very people who have been trampled down through injustice will be not only restored by God's justice, but will also be instruments of that justice. Now, let me show you one, one thing that I want to I that the writer of Ecclesiastes wrote. Notice towards the end of verse 18, it says, there will be no survivor for the house of Esau. Now remember, 
Obadiah is telling a story, a true story about God's people and Edom, the, the house of Esau. But then what does he do? He says, but really the story I'm telling you is a mirror because the day of the Lord isn't just for Edom, it's for the nations. And so when he says that there will be no survivor for the house of Esau, he's broadening that out for us to help us understand if you have not repented and believed and turned to Jesus as your rescuing king, you don't survive the day of the Lord. You don't survive. That's what he's saying to us right there in verse 18. Now, injustice. This is why the day of the Lord is so good. Look at what the he said about life in our broken world. And I know some of you are suspicious, so let me just put you at ease. Uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes wrote this just a few years before critical theory was published, okay? So this is not just messing, okay? Ecclesiastes 3, look at what he said. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was a wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Uh, wickedness there in the opening line could be, it's synonymous with injustice, right? So in the place of justice, there was injustice. In the place of righteousness, which could also be used synonymously with justice, there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Fam, the day of the Lord is the time where all injustice will finally be judged and full justice will be given. That's why the day of the Lord is good. And some of you are deeply burdened by injustices that you see around the world. Some of you have experienced forms of injustice, whether it's economic, some kind of social injustice, or racial injustice, or education. You just go right on down the line, a long line of injustices in our broken world. You don't have to look far. Solomon could uh, make that observation in his own day. And while it is right for us, God calls us to love mercy and to do justice. We should be people of justice, and we should love mercy. We should, wherever we live, live for justice and advocate for it and call out injustice, understanding all the while that all of our work will be done in a broken world, and any, of expre any expression or any gains that are made as it relates to Injustice being eradicated and justice being uh, implemented, if you will, will be partial gains that will only be made full at the day of the Lord. Okay, so a day is coming. In the meantime, understand it's uphill, it will be a battle, and it will always be incomplete in this broken world. But a day is coming, and that's why the day of the Lord is good and beautiful because all injustice will be eradicated and perfect justice will be done. Okay, so complete reversal. There's also a complete reversal of broken relationship. Let me show you this. So we have a, a reversal of injustice to justice. We have a reversal of broken relationship to reconciliation. This is quick, so let me just show you in verse 18. And it'd be easy to miss if we didn't know what we were looking for, but it says the house of Jacob will be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and then skip down a line, it says, they will burn them and consume them. Again, that poetry. But look at, he is, he is putting the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph together. You know why that's significant? If this was written when we think that it was, in mean, 580s BC sometime, the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph represent the divided kingdom, if you will. The house of Joseph represented the two tribes up north. The house of Jacob represented the two tribes down south. 
they were God's family and they were meant to, to live together under one king as one unified, life-giving family. But in their sin, their selfishness, the violence done against God and each other, they'd split. They'd been split for probably two to three hundred years at this time. So for their names to be written together into a sentence and having it described as they're going to do something together was insane. And that's why the day of the Lord is good. Because, fam, God's people on earth are really no different than the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph 2,500 years ago. We might as well name all of our churches house of Jacob and house of Joseph because we're just as divided now as God's people were then. And you know what? God hates it. He hates division. You're like, wait, God doesn't hate anything, John. Mm, read Proverbs. In Proverbs, actually, I don't have it on the screen for you. There's a verse that says, God hates those who sow discord among the brothers or the brothers and sisters of the family. He hates it. The day of the Lord represents a day where God will finally destroy all disunity in his family and restore the beauty and wholesomeness in relationships that should have been all along. That should be a good word for every one of us this morning because uh, I'm sure in our family units, we're probably sitting here feeling some disunity and division right now. I'm just talking about like your, your organic family. And I'm sure that you have been in churches where there has been painful, ugly division. And I am sure that in your life now, you have unreconciled, unresolved conflict with other people who also claim to be followers of Jesus. And it's not okay. And it weighs deeply on your soul. And sometimes it feels like that conflict is impossible to resolve or restore. Look, I've had, we've had challenges with people in the past. Maybe you can relate to this. Other followers of Jesus where there was conflict, we sat down to reconcile and restore. And we did. Like we did the hard work of having those conversations. And then you come out of that conversation and it's still not like it was. Do you have that? Have you ever had that? Guys, the day of the Lord is the day when all of those wounds will be healed all of the misunderstandings will be made, will be cleared up, and all of the brokenness within God's family will be reconciled and restored. Fam, the day of the Lord isn't just is. That's great. That's, trailer, that's my trailer park grammar right there growing up. The day of the Lord is good. It eradicates injustice and implements full justice reconciles broken relationships in God's family and makes them what they should have been all along, beautiful and life-giving. There's a third reversal. This is my favorite. And again, we almost wouldn't see it if we didn't know what we were looking for. Let me just show you in verse 20, what's the word that it opens with? What are, what are God's people called? The exiles. Do exiles have a home? Ah, oh, exiles are wandering or they're away from home. Okay, so that's God's people right now. And then it says, if you, um, the exiles will possess something. Exiles don't possess anything. You're an exile. You belong to somebody. You don't own anything. You're far from home. Uh, the exiles will possess the land of the Canaanites as far as what? Somebody say that out loud. Thank you. I have to clap words like that out. 
for each syllable. Zarephath. As far as Zarephath, what does that even mean? I don't have a map for you this morning. I like to give you a map sometimes. When God's people were rescued from slavery and they were headed for the promised land, the land was divided up by the tribes that would possess that land, right? Zarephath was all the way up north on the coast by Tyre and Sidon. You've heard of those cities maybe. Right in between the two. And I think it was the tribe of Asher, not to be confused with one of the reindeer. Asher was supposed, supposed to occupy that land. So Zarephath, when, when Obadiah is using this name, what he's doing is he's talking about a city that was within God's original settlement plan for his people. But because they disobeyed God, they never actually settled there. They never flourished there, and they never knew life. So now they're in exile because they've been disobedient kids, far from home, far from God with no way back. And God says through Obadiah, in the day of the Lord, I'm going to bring you home. And you can imagine an exile being like, home? What, what's home anymore? I can't even imagine home. So probably not all the way home, probably just partially or to a broken or whatever, but not all the way. And, and God says, no, all the way to Zarephath. Imagine that, Zarephath, which should have been home all along for some of his people, but never actually was because of their rebellion, and they were in exile. So what does that mean for us? The day of the Lord is good, because in some regard, there is a piece of everyone's soul this morning in this room that is living in exile because of your disobedience to God at some point in your life, or because your soul has been so deeply wounded by another person who was living in disobedience to God, right? And so they did violence to your soul, and it put your soul in some kind of exile, like where there should have been peace, there's no peace. Where there should be joy, there's no joy. Where there should be, right, fill in the blank. So I don't know where your exile is, but I know where your home is. And here for them, it's called Zarephath. For you, it's not Zarephath, but it's close to your father where your soul is fully restored and you know joy, peace, and satisfaction and past restored as it should have been all along. But in a season of life, you have taken your eyes off of your father and as a result, your soul has found itself in exile. I had that happen when I was a kid. We lived in upstate Vermont, way up north, and there's a zoo. To go to a zoo, we had to go to Canada. Like, that was my upbringing in Vermont. Like, plus, you didn't need zoos in Vermont. Like, Vermont was the zoo. So, you, like, you go to Canada. I forget where it was. Toronto, maybe? That doesn't sound right, though. It was called Granby Zoo. Anybody ever been? All right. At the Granby Zoo, 30 years, 40 years pre-COVID, massive crowds, right? And um, Dad gave very clear instructions. 1980, so very free range, even at the zoo, but still, some boundaries, right? Keep your eyes on dad. Well, we're pressing through the zoo. We get caught up in the crowds. I look away because I'm distracted by something beautiful. I turn back a couple minutes later expecting to touch dad, and where's dad? Not there. He's gone. I was lost, and my little boyish soul was in so much fear 
Guys, every one of you have visited the Granby Zoo with your soul, and you have taken your eyes off the Father, and as a result, your soul has gone into an exile of sorts. And the good news of the day of the Lord is this. Jesus has rescued you, and he is bringing your soul home. He is restoring you, and he is making you whole. The day of the Lord is that day when your soul will be fully out of exile and you will be fully reunited with your dad and anxiety will be fully replaced with peace and all of the exiled pieces of your soul will be restored to the way they should have been all along is what God is saying. Guys, the day of the Lord is really good. It's reversal in every sense. Injustice to justice, broken relationships in God's family to reconciled relationships. And third and finally, as it relates to that reversal, souls in exile are brought all the way home, rescued, if you will, back home with the Father. The day of the Lord is good. Now, it's good for uh, one other um, now, I mean, there are many others, but just one other that I want to point out to you this morning. Not only is it a restoration of past, right, what should have been long but wasn't, because of our personal sin and because of the brokenness of our world. It is also a reimagining of the future. Because, listen, when you're in exile, you lose the ability to imagine a hope-filled, beautiful future. We become so captivated by the brokenness of our past and the broken, hopeless experience of being in exile that we, we lose the ability to hope for and see the beauty of a future. I read a crazy article last night about refugees who fled Ukraine less than a month ago who are choosing, we're talking about moms now, like single moms, because spouses have died in many cases, choose to return to the brokenness of the Ukraine already because having a soul at home, even in all of the chaos, is preferred to living as an exile in a foreign land. It's mind-blowing, but it's the choice that many people are making. Guys, there is a spiritual reality to that for us. Oh, deep longing to be home where we should have been all along with the Father, a reimagined future that's better than we could have ever believed. Let me show you. Uh, this is really neat, too. And again, you wouldn't see it if you didn't know what you were looking for, but uh, verses 19 and 20, I think they're both up there. Let me, let me just read them out loud for you. Those of the Negeb shall pass Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim. We have an Ephraim in our church family. Are you in here, Ephraim? No, second service. And the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sephard shall possess the cities of the Negev feel like, oh man, what's John going to do now? This is going to be like a college class or history class that is going to get really boring. Uh, no, it won't. And um, let me just say, you should do your own research. Some really cool stories associated with each of those places. Here's what really popped at me when I was spending time in the text this week, and I think it's really cool. You need to imagine in your mind a compass 
laid down over the words on this page with an arrow pointing north and an arrow pointing south and an arrow pointing east and an arrow pointing west. And it's very important that your, your lines going in each direction don't terminate. It's very important that you imagine them as lines that have arrows, if you will, or whatever, but they're continuous lines. There's probably a name for that in math. Thank you. All right. Glad you guys are educated way beyond where I'm at. Fantastic. So that's what you need to imagine in your mind, a line that goes in ever-expanding kingdom. And like, all right, John, what are you talking about? Well, uh, the word Negeb, right? You said, well, let me just go in order so you know that I'm not making this up, and then you can check me later. Verse 19, Negeb, the first place that we see, that w- they would hear that and they'd be, they'd be like, uh, the south, like south of Maryland. For those of you from the north, you know what I'm talking about. Everything north of like Philly is the south, okay? So the Negeb is everything south of Philly, it's down south. Everything south of Kadena, right? South. Um, the Shephelah, that you would hear that name and you'd be like, oh, west of the Rockies. Like that's just, it's west of the Rockies. It's out west. Uh, they shall possess the land of Ephraim. That's, that's, that's New England. Like, that's north. That's up north. And uh, possess Gilead. I got, I got ahead of myself with New England. I guess Gilead would be that's the east coast, right? Gilead is the east. So what Obadiah is doing is he's giving them four reference points that represent geographically uh, north, south, east, and west, and what he's doing for them is, again, it's partially restoration of the past, partially reimagined future, because these are places that had God's people been submissive to him as king all along, they would have always lived in, they would have always flourished in, and they would have existed for the good of other people. But because of their rebellion, they found themselves in exiles, and these places were no longer home. And so now what Obadiah is doing is he's saying, God, on the day of the Lord, he's not just going to restore what should have been in the past. He's going to give a version of the future, which is far more beautiful than you can imagine. He's going to take you home to all of these places, and he's going to take you further, and his family is going to continue spreading. When I was a kid, actually, right after the Marine Corps, I was like 22, 23, I was driving a, a gold Saturn at the time that actually used more motor oil than gas. I think Saturn's no longer exist as a company, and that's probably why. Anyway, I was listening to, um, there were these things back in the day that were called radio stations. You'd spin to them on your dial and stuff. There was a song, I think Mercy Me sang it, band, old band. Um, you, I can only imagine. Anybody old enough? Look at you guys listening to your parents' music. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I can only imagine, and in the song, it's a, it's a song about, I can only imagine like when I'm with my father, when I'm with Jesus face to face. So it's all these things he's going to do. He's a mat, like, am I going to sing? Am I going to dance? I don't know the rest of the song, right? But that's it. Like, what am I going to do? Um, Obadiah would look at Mercy Me and be like, you can't imagine. You have no idea how beautiful it's going to be. Whatever you're able to imagine is just scratching the surface of what will actually be true in the day of the Lord. This existence is so broken and so marred that any glimpse that we have of beauty is just a nibble of how beautiful life is going to be 
in Jesus' kingdom, in this reimagined future. It is uh, a beautiful day where God will not only restore what should have been, but give to us, his undeserving kids, a future that is far more beautiful than the most beautiful day you can imagine right now. That's what he's saying. One more thing I want to show you in verse 21, and then we'll wrap it up. He says, Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. You're like, saviors? I thought we had one savior. See, John, there are multiple. Now, saviors, so what he's talking about is uh, throughout Israel's history, um, in the absence of good kings, there would be people known as judges. Sometimes they were men. There was a famous woman judge. You know her name? Deborah, right? Um, and these judges very often were referred to as saviors because they would fill two very important functions for God's people in the absence of a king. They would govern or rule, right? They would rule, but they would also execute, they would execute justice, and they would also rescue from the bad guy, if you will, right? So these were the saviors that Obadiah is talking about. He's, he's, he's promising God's people, you're broken right now, you don't have your own king, take heart, God is going to send saviors or rescuers, if you will, to implement justice and to bring about your rescue. Now notice where they're going to rule. What mountain? Esau. So what family name are we talking about? People of Edom again, right? So Mount Esau representing, is representative now of incredible injustice and violence. And God is saying, I will send rescue to the darkest, most broken place in this world, and I will send rescue to the most, to the darkest, most broken piece of your exiled home and your, your exiled soul, and it will be beautiful again. And so this will come true in, re, in real history. But again, through the day of the Lord, Obadiah is pointing to a future so that all of these saviors point to the one true and better savior who would go to the Mount Esau of your soul and rescue you and execute justice and restore beauty where there was brokenness. And notice his final line, the kingdom will be the Lord's. That's cool because what does Jesus teach us to pray? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When you're praying, as Jesus teaches us to pray, you are praying for this day to dawn. And that's good. And that's beautiful. Now, check this out. I want you to see this. Obadiah does not exist in isolation. It's not a finished story. It's not an isolated story. It's not a fake story. Uh, it's rooted in history, and it's ongoing right now. It's our story. But let me show you the historical piece first. Uh, Genesis, this will be on your screen. Genesis 28, 14 and 15. This was the promise God made to Jacob. Check this out. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, the dust of the earth. Uh, uh, for those of you who are at war with dust, he's, he's saying that positively here, right? Dust of the earth. And you will spread abroad. Now notice this. I love this. The directions. We just saw this in Obadiah. To the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. What did Obadiah just describe? And in you and your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Where did we hear those words some other time? What did Jesus say? And behold, 
I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. All right, right here, north, south, east, west. Why do God's people exist? Why does God's family exist here? What's it say? For the good of others, right? To bless others, right? That's what it says. What do we know from Acts 1.8? Here it is on the screen. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There's that compass blowing up on the map again with unending lines. We exist for the good of other people and for our king's fame. So we could wrap it this way, family. We are living the story that Obadiah wrote right here. Later chapters, but this is the story that we are living. And Jesus is expanding his kingdom. And at the day of the Lord, when he returns, all injustice eradicated, relationships reconciled, exiled souls rescued, a kingdom of peace and justice and beauty that is expanding, and a one true savior that will go to the darkest corners of our hearts, the darkest corners of the world, and bring us all the way home. Now, here's the tension for us. In my Western Christianity upbringing, I was taught more how to be a culture warrior than a witness for this beautiful kingdom. Many of you come from geographic regions or places in our country or expressions of Christianity that have trained you or taught you that to be a Christian means you're a culture warrior. You are at war with the culture and you are at war with enemies within the culture. Those are lies. It's a pseudo expression of Christianity. You cannot simultaneously be a culture warrior and a witness of the kingdom. You cannot be a witness to the people with whom you are at war. And you cannot be a witness to a broken culture if your idea of the culture is that it is your enemy and it needs to be destroyed. Fam, we are witnesses of this true and better kingdom and witnesses of the true and better king. And the day of the Lord stands for us this morning as a source of hope. In this world, we will experience brokenness. We will experience injustice. Relationships will be restrained. Souls will be in exile. But the day is coming when all of that will be reversed and Jesus will restore the past that should have been all along and he will welcome those of you who have repented and believed into a reimagined future that is far more beautiful than anything you could ever imagine in your wildest dreams. The day of the Lord is good. Let's just close our eyes now and um, respond as we transition to communion and to singing. I don't know how you need to respond, but thankfully there's a third member of the Trinity named the Holy Spirit who already has that job. So I'm gonna stop talking and sit down. I just encourage each one of us to listen to and talk with the Spirit and respond however he is leading us to respond. Thank mm-hmm. you.